Hey folks, Dave Harvey here and welcome to the Am I Called podcast. We've got a great show for you today, a great podcast, but but first some some breaking news from central headquarters at Am I Called, which is really basically Joe Hearn's basement. He's our content director up in Louisville. But anyway, this the site has been totally revamped now. So we have we've shut down our subscription service and it's all free. It's all free now. So the only thing we're asking from, from you is to just sign up for the newsletter so that we can now deliver new and customized content directly into your inbox. So go ahead and pop over to the site when you have a chance and check out the new design and, and sign up for the newsletter. Now, on to today's guest. Friends, um, Am I Called has had close to 60 podcasts since our inception and all of them have been with men. Uh, the website has been unapologetically aimed at men for years now because the target audience has been planters and pastors and aspiring leaders. Yet I have become increasingly persuaded that that my practice, which I think illustrates that uh, a woman's voice and a woman's perspective into these matters is less necessary. So I've, I've become persuaded that my practice has been misguided, actually, that my practice is part of the very problem that I want to talk about today. And so I've been looking to pass the mic to some thoughtful ladies, and today's guest was first on my list. Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick serves as uh, a writer, a conference speaker. She serves the local church in a number of ways. Um, what you need to know about Elise is that she has written, oh, at least two dozen books. Um, but more important than writing anything is that this is a woman who loves her family and loves her local church. Uh, they, they do a weekly podcast, uh, Front Porch with the Fitzes. And uh, Elise and I have, have known each other for years, and I deeply value her writings and her thinking. Elise, thanks for joining us on the Am I Called podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. So I gave a little bio, Elise, um, but why don't you expand it out a bit? Tell us, tell us about where you live, uh, your family, and, and what you're doing right now. How, how are you spending your time? Yeah, thanks, and thanks for having a woman's voice on, I sort of wonder if the people who listen to your podcast are going to continue to listen or not. <laughs> oh, well, we're sorry. hopeful. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, a little bit about me. I'm in uh, Southern California. I actually was born in, born in Los Angeles and lived in Southern California my whole life. Ergo, I am a completely Southern California person. Uh, which basically means that if the sky isn't blue and the sun is shining, there's something really wrong in the universe. Um, <laughs> that sounds like Florida. <laughs> yeah, except minus the minus the humidity. Yes. But yeah, okay, I'll get there. Um, and the other thing that I think that's significant about me, of course, is that I'm married. I've been married for 43 years, mm, 44, coming up on 44. I have three children. All three are married. Uh, all three are believing. Um, praise God for that. Mm. That's a, that's an amazing thing. Cause really it's not me. 
And uh, my kids all live in Southern California, and I have six grandchildren. And um, so I spend a lot of my time going to my grandchildren's games. Um, I have a daughter who plays, a granddaughter who plays softball, and uh, two grandsons who play football, and another grandson who plays lacrosse, and another grandson who plays baseball. So uh, Phil and I spend a lot of our time uh, going as the grandma and the grandpa to the games and cheering for our grandchildren. And um, we also, as you said, we have a podcast, which is my daughter, Jessica Thompson, and my son, Joel Fitzpatrick. Joel is an ordained pastor in the PCA. And my husband, Phil, and I, we do a podcast once a week-ish. And uh, that's really, uh, generally speaking, when people tell me that they listen to the podcast, I apologize, because (laughs) it's... um, it's basically silliness, um, just sort of family, people sitting around and riffing on each other. And then we get around to uh, serious topics. Um, but it's it's primarily just what, what would it be like if you hung out in our uh, living room or on our front porch and listened to us talk to each other. So we've got that going on. I also just released a book, so I'm in process with a book launch. And uh, do a little bit of public speaking, uh, probably not as much as I used to. And uh, my husband and I are both of Social Security age, which we're glad that there's still Social Security. Mm. (laughs) And uh, yeah, that's basically my life, except, of course, we're coming up on the summer, on the summer, and today actually it's going to be about 90 here, which is really unusual, and uh, can't sort of wait until it's time to go to the beach. Well, it sounds like a very rich life that you're living right now, and I'm happy to hear yeah. it. Yeah, it is. So, Elise, one of my goals for this interview was to talk specifically about uh, women in the church, and, and I'm thinking that... You know, you and I hail from a similar background, mm-hmm. uh, the re- reform-minded, gospel-loving congregations. Uh, and I know this is something that you have been doing a lot of thinking and writing on uh, of late. And actually, for a while, I can remember some of our first conversations being about this topic. So <clears throat> let's just start with, with where you are encouraged um, what are some encouraging trends you see with how the church is thinking about women and relating to women right now? Yeah, I am encouraged. I'm encouraged um, because I'm seeing that the church is beginning to ask questions like what you're asking. And um, I think in part that has a lot to do with social media. Women are generally all over social media. Um, and it's also, I think, a um, beloved <laughs> um, work of the spirit in the lives of guys when, um, for instance, when I see a stack of books, you know, when famous guys or, you know, guys who have a big uh, voice in the church post the list of books that they're reading and there are no books by women on that um on that list, uh, I think in the past it was probably pretty discouraging, but now I'm I'm seeing that guys are asking questions like, uh, yeah, what what women's books should I read? Should I read books by women? 
I don't think that question's being answered a lot anymore. I think it's been answered. Um, but, you know, I know Tabidi Anawabi um, started following a bunch of women on Twitter because he, he wanted to hear a women's voice, a woman's voice. He wanted to hear what women were thinking about. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm very thankful. It seems to me that there is uh, a resurgence among women who want to be very serious theologians and who want to have a voice. And there is, seems to be now open doors um, that perhaps didn't, used to be there. And, you know, we're talking, as you said, to a group of guys who are church planters or pastors. And, you know, what I, what I want to say to them is um, more, than, more than half of your congregation is going to be female. And uh, if you're not listening to women or listening to what concerns women or thinking about how to craft a sermon in a way that resonates with a woman, um, you know, you're missing half your congregation. And that's not to say, you know, that guys need to talk about things that are necessarily particularly what someone might call feminine, but rather that they would begin to ask questions like, um, have a group of women around you who you know you can bounce ideas off of and who are uh, strong, theological, godly women and say, hey, I'm going to use this. I was thinking about using this illustration. Is this something that, that, you, would, um, that you would resonate with? I know in my daughter's church, um, she's on a board that um, the pastor runs those things by them because he wants to make sure that, you know, the, the illustrations, for instance, that he's using don't just don't just resonate with the guys. So, you know, if you're if you're um, and I'm seeing this, this is a long answer to your question. I'm seeing this a lot more, Dave. I'm seeing guys trying to ask questions like, well, if I want to use an illustration, perhaps this week I shouldn't use the NFL. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. Yeah, I, I think for, you know, you, you have that a category perhaps of. Are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? I was just observing that I, I think you have this this uh, category of complementarian minded uh, pastors that might be disinclined to uh, to pursue the perspective of, of women because um, they're not necessarily sure how to locate that perspective in right. what they're doing. But then I think there's this this larger group and it's a growing group of of planters and pastors that would like to do that, but they just don't know how. And right. so some of the things that you mentioned, you know, just about sermon preparation and, and, and sports illustrations and analogies and uh, following the beady following people on Twitter. Those are really practical, helpful things that I think, you know, pastors can, can really employ. Yeah, um, those kinds of things. Or like, for instance, how shocking would it be to a woman if you're going to quote someone uh, in your sermon that you actually quote a woman? <laughs> and that's not to say, you know, that you that you have to always quote women. Uh, I think I have really only heard 
a, a very few number of sermons. I mean, a very few. And Dave, I've been going to church for nearly half a century. Uh, I've heard very few sermons in which a woman was quoted. I, I want to say there are two women that guys tend to quote if they're going to quote a woman. One would be Dorothy Sayers, and one would be Flannery O'Connor. And, 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 and I'm I, glad. I would add Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Those three women. It's like those three women, and, and I love those three women, and I'm thankful for them. But there's a, there's a raft of women who are doing a lot of really good work uh, that maybe if you were reading them, if guys were reading them, they would think, oh, all right, well, maybe this is, this is something I can, I can save. This is a quote I can save and use in, in a sermon. I mean, honestly, and I don't, I don't, I, I wonder how a guy would feel if he, if he was in a church and every week, the pastor only quoted women. Um, I mean, I just, I just want to ask that question. Yeah, it's a great and question. You, and I'm, and you know, I, I know that guys in sort of a younger generation, not certainly not my generation, but a younger generation, I think they're much more comfortable with listening to women. I know my son's generation. As I said, he's a PCA. He's ordained in the PCA, but he's much more comfortable uh, asking women for advice, um, uh, quoting women, reading women, than maybe guys who would be my age are. So again, that you know, that's a that's a practical thing that a church planter might do to say, uh, all right, I, I I see that half of my con- more than half of my congregation is female and I'm, um, I'm not trying to, trying to reach them. How can I do that? And if you have women who, who you're willing to listen to, I, they'd be able to help you. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good and very, very practical. Um, you know, I was thinking, earlier today just about some of the, the the cultural developments that are taking place which in in, in my lifetime seems somewhat unprecedented I'm thinking about mm-hmm. you know the me too movement mm-hmm. um, and the the kind of momentum that that appears to be gaining and I, I'm just wondering how you as a woman think about that with respect to the to the church are, are there ways that 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 movement is having a positive impact upon the church? Are there dangers of that movement to the church? How do you think about that? Well, as part myself of the Me Too movement, um, and, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just put this out there. In 1970, I was date raped. Um, and in 1971, I was assaulted at, by a guy at work. Uh, so I'm part of the Me Too movement. Wow. Um, I think it would be a really good idea for men to begin to take seriously the amount of sexual abuse that's happened in churches, not only in churches, but to women who are in their churches. And to begin to ask the question, if I knew that a third of my congregation, 
a third of the fem- women in my congregation. If I knew that a third of the women in my congregation have had some sort of sexual violence in their life, how would I change the way I talk about um, headship, uh, submission? Not that, I, you, you know me, Dave, I'm complementarian. But how does that need to be framed? How would it also change the way that I might talk about uh, female characters in the Bible? For instance, how would it change the way I talk about the story of David and Bathsheba, who, quite frankly, I'm pretty convinced Bathsheba was a um, victim of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we begin, <laughs> or the woman at the well, how do we begin to recast the women who are talked about in Scripture? And, you know, you, again, you know me. I, I, you know, I, I will be the first among us to say women are as culpable for sin in their lives as men are. All right? So let's just say that. But should we be more aware, more careful when we're talking about women or women, the roles of women that we, and particularly if we're going to try to reach the Gen Xers, the younger women who are, quite frankly, much more willing to talk about this stuff than my generation was. How are we going to frame truth to them without giving truth up, without without changing our position on truth? How are we going to frame truth to them in such a way that they'll be able to uh, ingest it without having to pretend that the life experience that they have, perhaps in their own home, perhaps with their, uh, uh, their fathers or their uncles or other males uh, in their family. How are, we going to, how are we going to talk to them, tell them the truth without, um, without reopening wounds? Yeah, it's, it's, almost like when complementarianism caught wind um, you know Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was published an incredible work that was immensely helpful was immensely helpful to me uh, as a um, as a an undefined complementarian I had certain convictions but I didn't really know how to articulate them, and, and so it brought, it brought language and, and vision to it. But there was an instinct that ran very deep in those early years to protect roles and to protect headship, which was indeed under attack. But, but there wasn't a corresponding awareness of the reality of pain and abuse and some of the ways that women have suffered under misapplications and corrupted applications of headship 
And so there was, it's almost like those two things have to be held in tension to really arrive at the most beautiful displays of complementarianism. And, and yet, you know, many of us w ran forward without both of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and you know, whenever, whenever a doctrine is codified or defined in response to a radical um, untruth, a, a radical heresy, whenever a doctrine is defined in, as a response, then it tends to take on this life of radical response. And I think that now we have come to the place, and finally, where we are, first of all, beginning to see the fruit of radical patriarchy. Um, and it's not that, again, you know me. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I believe that my husband is the head of the home, and I believe in male headship in the church. Um, but if my response to that is, is my response to feminism is a radical patriarchy, then I end up just in another ditch and really hurting people that, um, hurting people that, you know, I, I'm meant to protect. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm thankful Again, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the Church Two movement. Um, I see, of course, a lot of knee-jerk reaction to that among guys who want to say, "Yeah, you're just you're you're all you're just making everybody a victim," and blah blah blah. You know, let me just say something as a, as a woman who just said to you that in 1970 I was date raped. I'm so humiliated by that, Dave. I didn't even talk about it until the Me Too movement happened. Mm. So it's not as though women are saying, yeah, Me Too or Church Too, because they've got some axe to grind. It's that we're finally feeling like, all right, I need to first of all own this, and I need to say, yeah, to all of my sisters and brothers who have been raped, you're not the only one. Um, I feel like I need to say that. And honestly, I, I, this is just a real personal note. When I tweeted as part of the Me Too movement, one of my grandchildren, my, I have a 19-year-old grandson who's just such a delight, he he emailed me or he texted me and he said, Meme, I just saw your, I just saw your tweet and I'm so sorry. And I wept, mm. Dave, because I didn't want him to have to bear that in any way. And I can sit and cry about this right now. I mean, this happened to me. How many years ago was that? 50 years ago? Almost 50 years ago. And I can, and I can weep about it. And, and weep about it in the sense that it's, it was one of the most humili humiliating things that ever happened to me. So saying all that to say, 
when guys respond to, for instance, the Me Too or the Church Too movement with hardness of heart or think, oh, yeah, you guys are just doing that because you want to denigrate the men. You are so wrong. <laughs> I can't. You know, I mean, are, are there would might there be a woman who's doing that? OK, but mm-hmm. I mean, that's not this movement. Right. And not most women. And not and certainly not most Christian women for a Christian woman to have to admit that is so utterly humiliating. It's so shaming, Dave, because there's always something in your heart that says, yeah, but you deserved it. Hmm. Yes, it, it, I it, wish I wish guys would get that. It takes more courage for a, a woman to acknowledge that than for a man to protect his headship. And, uh, you know, I, I've got a number of things popping into my head that I want to talk about at least, but I don't want to, I don't want to just like blow into that without acknowledging the reality that you have just shared something that's deeply painful and that I am so deeply sorry to hear about that experience and its effect upon you. Thank you, Dave. And, and then also to recognize that you speak for many other women in in sharing that and and that that's what's you know that that's what the me too movement the church too movement you know that's what these things are tapping into i i it, it seems like one of the benefits is that it it's sensitizing on the church side it's sensitizing christians to to power dynamics that that are in play that we can tend to spiritualize away um that that people that enjoy power whether they realize it or not don't don't have the luxury to claim ignorance about the reality of that power that that doesn't exonerate them because they don't necessarily understand it or understand how the dynamic works uh and that and that uh, on a broader scale, that men have lived with a long history of of privilege because they've enjoyed that that power. So you know, while, while I think ge- gender is in play, and at at times uh, ab- abuse and crime in those ways, the service of this to to all of us in the church is that I think the the church culture is becoming more aware and more sensitive to the reality of power. And I think we were, we were not as adept to understanding it, things in those terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yes. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Dave. You know, that it's been very encouraging to me, particularly, you know, um, there have been guys who Ray Ortland among them, um, who, when I when I tweeted as part of the Me Too movement, got right back on, and said, "I'm so thankful. I, you know, I'm thank thank you for doing this. I'm so sorry." And that that's empowering. That's very helpful. You know, the problem, Dave, is that we have to use these um, social sciences 
constructs. We have to use those words like power dynamics. And we have to draw them from the social sciences because the church really hasn't done a very good job framing it in the same way that complementarianism, those, the words that came out when the blue book was published, um, we had a way to frame things then. But I don't think that Christians have a, a real gospel-centered way of framing things yet. And so we have to use words like power dynamics, and that works, but we, I, we haven't, I don't think, done enough really great work to be able to frame it in such a way that it doesn't sound like we're walking into, um, you know, the social sciences. For instance, uh, I tweeted something over the weekend about Jesus, how his first conversation after the resurrection was with a woman. And, um, and I was pretty instantaneously called a feminist. Hmm. <laughs> so, sad. yeah, well, yes, you know, well, you know, you've, you've fallen to liberalism. Um, and, but see, that's, again, that's the knee jerk reaction. And that's why, Dave, I'm so thankful for this conversation. I wish I could have this conversation with oh, over and over and over again um, with guys to just say, and not even just guys. You know, a lot of pushback I get is from women who have bought into um the lie that if you say that Jesus is pro-woman, that somehow you're, you're a feminist and you're denigrating men. And um, it's not my point to denigrate men. It's my point, actually, is that Jesus honored and elevated women. And the mere fact that Mary Magdalene, of all people, I mean, you could kind of get there if it was Jesus' mom, you know, the Holy Mary, Mother of God. You could you could get there if it was her. But Mary Magdalene, that she's the first one who hears words from the risen Christ spoken in the new world. See, that means something. And, it, and you know, I mean, I had people telling me, oh, it was just a circumstance, it just happened. That No, actually, it wasn't. Jesus purposefully chose to speak to a woman and to commission her to go and talk about the resurrection. He commissioned her to do that. Um, that means something to my way of thinking. It means that the way of that old way of thinking about women as not even really being able to give testimony in a court, which is how things were for them, um, that old way of doing things is over. Uh, let's not let's not militate against what Christ sought to do. I think you're uh, you're writing on some of this stuff now, and I want to talk about that for for a minute. But first, for for any pastors that are listening, church planters, uh, church leaders, one uh, Elise was just talking about how there is no vocabulary. And uh, the, the church really needs to develop an understanding and a vocabulary for this. And 
I recently finished a book by Andy Crouch called Playing God, um, which is about power. Um, and it's a, it's a great treatment, and would, you would do well to, to read it and to study it because he begins to get at this, to unpack it, and to arm us with the very vocabulary that, uh, that Elise was just referring to. Now, Elise, I know that your, your, your present book, uh, Finding the Love of Jesus, has just been released. But first, I, I want to I ask you about um, Home, the book you wrote, how, how the New Heavens and the New Earth Satisfy Our Deepest Longings. Um, uh, for, our guests, for, for people that are listening, th- that book had a profound impact on me because it, it just gave voice to this feeling that I live with and I think most of us live with, uh, that we, we all live with this kind of haunting sense of exile that shadows us each and every day. Uh, and and Elise just made a number of points in the book about that, but but basically getting to the to the big reveal, which is that that's because we're fitted for another home, which comes to us ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, you know, for me, Elise, reading reading that book, I think I told you that reading that book became like a devotional experience for me. So here's my question: Why did you write that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Like most of my books, that book came out of a season of pain in my own life. Um, I had gone through some very difficult church situations. I had gone through some very um, shattering uh, situations with friends in ministry. Um, I had um, gone through the loss of loved ones. And it was really a time in my life, probably lasted for several years, where I sort of, I, I sort of couldn't find my footing. <laughs> and I, there was a great sorrow, um, and 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 something that I I didn't really know how to, I didn't know the vocabulary, um, how to talk about it. And so uh, I began to try to figure out, you know, what is this? What is this longing that I have? And uh, and uh, and and I and I began then to talk about it in terms to define it in terms of homesickness. That in fact, I was really becoming more aware than I had ever been before of the homesickness that I had because I am now and have been, uh, we all are, living in exile. And that's not to say that Christ hasn't brought us near because he certainly has. And the exile that, you know, Adam and Eve uh, experienced uh, in the garden has been in part mitigated of course, by the cross and our relationship with God through Christ now. So um, that that exile is um, it has been mitigated, but we're living in the already and the not yet. So you know, yes, I am complete. I, I mean, Paul says I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Well, yeah, I am, but no, I'm not. And that's the that's that already and not yet, and so there was there was this longing in my heart 
to go home, just to be home. And Christians do talk that way, but I don't think I had ever sort of defined it, categorized that sort of longing that I daily have of homesickness to, to be at the place where I don't get up every morning and say, things shouldn't be like this. <laughs> it shouldn't be like this. That, that there would come a time when I would wake up in the morning and say, yeah, things are exactly the way they should be. And part of, I think, the reason that we don't think about uh, our heavenly home in that way is because we have defined our heavenly home more like a Greek philosopher than, than a Christian theologian. And when I say that, of course, you know what I mean is that, like, we think that, well, what heaven is going to be like is sort of this ethereal floating on a cloud kind of strumming a harp with see-through fingers. Um, it's not very concrete. Um, thinking about it in that way, thinking about it as, well, heaven's just going to be an eternity-long worship service, which, in fact, it will be eternally eternity-long worship, but we shouldn't think about that the way we think about our song services at church. Our, our entire being is going to be so focused on how great God is, everything will be worship. But, you know, I want to get to get to something that C.S. Lewis talks about in, in The Great Divorce, which of course is his treatise of heaven and hell. And he says that when you, when someone, and you know the story, you know, these guys have taken a bus trip from hell to heaven, and they're trying to walk on the grass, and the grass is cutting their feet, because the grass is so much more concrete <laughs> so much more real than what they're used to. And that's what, that's the thing that really made me so hmm. happy about the world to come, which it, it's that it's, it's, you know, I'm sitting here looking out my window and I'm watching the wind blow these uh, pepper trees that are right by my house. And it's so pretty. And there's these sort of, there's mountains with covered with avocado groves and it's so pretty, but when I'm looking at this, I need to understand this is a shadow compared to the new heavens and the new earth. And on the new earth, what I'm seeing here that looks beautiful and green and there's sun shining, it's going to be a, it's going to be a faint shadow compared to that world to come. And that thought, Dave, that gives me hope. I don't have a lot of hope about strumming a harp with see-through fingers. I got a lot of hope about that. Yeah, it's it's like the uh, the the natural man uh, reaches every day for and like an over-realized eschatology. Uh, that sense that heaven is here, heaven is now. I should be able to experience it now. It's my right. Um, I remember I remember coming at this uh, from a from a different angle, but but realizing. Uh, something that was equally meaningful to me, and it was in reading Second Timothy, Paul's last epistle. So the last thing he wrote, mm -hmm. thought calls it his last will and testament, and and he begins in the first chapter to give this chronicle of all of the broken, open-ended relational issues and problems and challenges. So whether it's you know all of Asia has left me or 
Vigilus or Hermogenes or, or Demas, you know, went back to the world or Alexander the metal worker. Remember him? Oh, he mm -hmm. did me great harm. And then he mm -hmm. says in chapter four, like when I, when I stood to give my first defense, no one no stood one by stood me, with, right. all deserted me. That's the last mm -hmm. chapter of the last thing that he wrote. Mm. And, you know, you realize that it, life was profoundly open-ended for Paul. If, he, if, if success was defined through closure, then he was a failure. And, uh, but it's just an illustration, another one that gets at the same point that you're making, which is that we all have those things and they, they kind of agitate us for a, for a place where closure will come. But it's not here, and it's it's not now. It's it's the new heavens and the new earth, and and we have because of Jesus, we have closure on that which matters most. You know, mm -hmm. we have closure on our sin, closure on salvation, but mm -hmm. but the rest of it is open ended until until the future. Um, Dave, I, I I love what you just did there with Second Timothy. That's so great, and you know I, I think that we. We live in this sort of evangelical culture of, you know, victory and the victorious life as if, um, as if, you know, you're not going to keep struggling. And, you know, if you could just have enough faith or be obedient enough or some, whatever, that, you know, all of these, all of these open-ended, all of the sorrow that Paul must have felt. When he said, no one stood with me, the Lord was with me, but none of my friends, no one stood with me. And to say, and, and not just to pass that off and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, Paul was happy. No, actually, Paul was suffering mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was, and he was heartbroken. That's right. A able to draw comfort from the thing that that mattered most and that was mm -hmm. that the lord stood by him but but mm -hmm. you know he he limped into heaven right like we all will <laughs> right amen like we yeah. like we like we all will dave I, every one of us you know for whatever reason every one of us no one none of us are going to go doing cartwheels into heaven. We're, we're all going to limp into heaven because, because we've been in exile. And, but, you know, we'll see him. And, you know, the thing that's so encouraging to me is to know that the incarnate Christ is still in heaven, is in heaven now. And so when I get there, whether I stop off at uh, paradise before the new earth or he comes back, today now would be good he comes back today and uh translates us reshapes this earth translates us into uh the new heavens and the new earth it is a incarnate in flesh bodied christ that we will see and he'll take our hand in his nail scarred hand he'll take our hand and and we'll get to actually see him, mm. not like, you know, some sort of spirit being. He's still incarnate. And that's so encouraging to me. Yes. You know, um, 
Jesus has taken human flesh into the throne room of heaven right now. Well, I can't think of a uh, a better way to, uh, to to end a podcast than on that note, Elise, um, because that's such an eloquent picture and a, a beautiful portrayal of something that awaits us all. And uh, I I share your desire of wishing that it were today um, and now <laughs> and right this very second. Yes, tell us uh, as we wrap up here. Tell us. Uh, your your most recent book is Finding the Love of Jesus. Um, wh- why did you write it? Okay, so Finding the Love of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, I'll be real upfront here. I, I wrote it because I was irritated. <laughs> because a lot of this stuff that that is written for women about reading the Bible um, really doesn't read the Bible seeing Jesus as the center point of the story and is sort of more about how to, you know, get your act together or, um, you know, how to be a great Proverbs 31 woman or, um, you know, about how to, how to, you know, do your devotion. So God will be happy or even, even, you know, best case scenario, um, women's Bible studies, just sort of about, you know, well, the Bible isn't about you. Okay, that's true. It's about God. And to that, I say yes. But then I say no, actually, the Bible, Jesus said it was about him. (laughs) So what I wanted to do um, was, was put together a, a very easily accessed, um, little book, it's short, little book about how to read in particular the Old Testament and the different genres of scripture in in the way that Jesus told his disciples to read it in Luke 24. So how do we find Jesus in the Psalms? How do we find Jesus in Genesis? How do we find Jesus in the book of Job? How do we find, you know, it's just always asking the question, how do we find Jesus? And then secondarily, to point out places where Jesus, even as the pre-incarnate Christ, as the angel of the Lord, how he interacted with women during those times. So that was my point. My point was basically, the Bible's not about you, true. It's about God, yes, but it's in particular about God the Son. So the book is Finding the Love of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. It's published by Bethany House. And mm-hmm. if uh, if that interests you, or I know it's at this point, it's mostly guys that are reading the podcast. So um, it's it, that's a good book for all of us to read. Mm-hmm. But also mm-hmm. you may uh, be connected to women or married to a woman that would that would be a great resource for encourage her or go ahead and get onto Amazon for her and, mm-hmm. and get that book. Um, Elise, thank you for serving us today by speaking so carefully and so thoughtfully and so honestly on the issue of women and the church. I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you, Dave. And uh, again, I'm grateful to have time with you and particularly grateful that, that you're having these kinds of conversations. Thank you. That's going to play out in the lives of 
thousands of women. So thank you. You're welcome. So for our listeners, uh, just a reminder that this podcast is part of a suite of services from amicall.com. There's uh, dozens of articles. There's dozens of podcasts with folks like Andy Crouch, Randy Alcorn, Carl Truman, Russ Moore, uh, and now Elise Fitzpatrick, um, Carl Ellis, a host of other folks that I think would interest you. So don't forget to head over to the site, check out the new design, sign up for the newsletter, and, and thank you for checking that out. And thanks for joining us today on the Am I Called podcast. Mm-hmm.